Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Inequality and environmental justice meet in the nation's county jails. People living in eight of the 11 jails in the three largest county jail systems, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, are in the 90th percentile or higher for cancer risk related to pollution, including diesel pollution and respiratory hazard. Nine of the jails sit closer to toxic wastewater than at least 97% of the country, and all 11 are in the 90th percentile or higher in terms of their proximity to hazardous waste sites. County jails are deliberately sited in environmentally dangerous areas. Rikers Island, New York's largest jail, sits on a former waste dump, and its prisoners live closer to hazardous waste than 97% of Americans. Chicago's Cook County Jail, in the middle of the Latinx community of Little Village, has more diesel pollution than just about anywhere else in the nation. Jails are becoming a focus of the environmental justice movement. According to Grist, quote, this is because environmental justice advocates focus on so-called frontline communities, places that shoulder a disproportionate burden of society's waste, contamination, and pollution, end quote. David Pello, director of the Global Environmental Justice Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara, asserts that people incarcerated in county jails form frontline communities. The so-called anti-protest laws have been steadily emerging following a series of events in recent years, notably protests during Trump's election, resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline, and protests against police brutality. While not explicitly outlawing protest, these introduced bills use language such as unlawful assembly or civil unrest to describe prohibited behavior. Bills variously include provisions to hold protesters without bail, bar convicted protesters from public benefits such as unemployment, and provide legal protections for people who run over protesters with cars. The U.S. Protest Law Tracker website, a project of the International Center for Nonprofit Law, tracks what they describe as, quote, initiatives at the state and federal level since November 2016 that restrict the right to peaceful assembly, end quote. They list 18 state legislators as having successfully passed laws fitting this description and 48 state legislators having proposed laws fitting this description. In total, there are 71 such bills currently pending. Along with the police, a number of corporate sponsors have also supported these anti-protest bills, notably medical insurance conglomerate United Health Group and the telecommunication corporations AT&T and Comcast. A significant subset of anti-protest bills are critical infrastructure bills which impose stringent legal penalties on anyone interrupting the function of fossil fuel infrastructure, particularly natural gas and crude oil pipelines. Fossil fuel corporations are on record as the most active pro-legislation lobbyists for critical infrastructure bills. These bills typically upgrade what were previously minor trespassing misdemeanors to more serious felonies with years of incarceration upon conviction. 
This legislative push is a reaction to recent movements by indigenous Native Americans resisting pipeline construction on treaty-protected land, such as the current Ojibwe-led resistance to construction of Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline. According to U.S. Customs and Border Control, April 2021 saw a record number of arrests of people attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border, 179,000, the highest number in 15 years, just surpassing March 2021 at 171,000, including nearly 19,000 unaccompanied minors. As of early May, 22,500 asylum-seeking children who have crossed the southern border were held in approximately 200 detention facilities. The number of detained children has doubled over the last two months. The data shows that 550 minors attempt to cross the border each day. According to a Customs and Border Protection report, of the 179,000 migrants and refugees who were arrested during crossing last month, approximately 112,000 were expelled. Additionally, a new program was recently launched called Operation Sentiel, a broad collaboration between Customs and Border Control, the FBI, and a number of other agencies. In their month of operation, Operation Sentiel has revoked hundreds of visas associated with efforts to smuggle migrants across the border. The Biden administration has pressured Mexico and Central American nations to increase enforcement efforts, and the White House reported last month that Mexico had recently committed to maintaining 10,000 troops along the border in order to make crossing more difficult. Approximately 17,000 U.S. Border Patrol agents are currently assigned to the southern border. Last week, we heard from Kim, Sherry, Lauren, Pablo, and Brian about Parole Illinois, a group fighting to reinstate earned discretionary reentry. This is the last of a two-part conversation with them. In 1978, Illinois abolished the discretionary parole system. Today, it remains one of just 16 states, plus the District of Columbia, without any means for incarcerated people to earn parole. In the previous episode, they introduced themselves and their own connections to incarceration. A couple of them have loved ones locked inside or have been inside themselves, and spoke to how these inside-outside relationships have impacted their lives. In this week's show, they speak about why parole was abolished in 1978, and about how prison is further traumatizing people who are inside and those who have loved ones in prison or jail. They talk about the future of the group Parole Illinois and how they'd like to change the tough-on-crime narrative to ensure a meaningful reform of the parole system. Here they are. Parole was abolished in Illinois in 1978 because of criticism of the parole system on all sides of the political spectrum. After the death penalty was abolished, right-wing people thought that these people who weren't getting the death penalty should stay in prison forever. And so they shouldn't have a chance at parole and they created life without parole sentences. But there was also legitimate criticism of the parole board being racist. Mm -hmm. Instead of however, addressing the racism in the parole board, they simply abolished parole so that nobody would have a chance to go before the parole board and give their story. We realized that some people could criticize the parole system for being racist or for being part of the system of incarceration. So we constantly are reflective about in the process of working 
to have parole, which we call earned discretionary reentry. We're constantly thinking about how are we also challenging the basic mindsets and power relations that have kept in place mass incarceration and targeted criminalization. So yes, parole has been part of the system. It has been racist in the past and it is part of the carceral institution. But as we are trying to bring back a form of parole so that people like of Lauren's husband and Kim's husband and Pablo's friends in prison so they could have a chance at having their stories heard and getting released, we also are thinking about how does our work challenge the stereotypes of the violent offender, as Pablo said, how does it help us recognize, as others have said, that these people are in prison are still part of our families and communities and growing individuals and they should be out here in the community. Um, how does it challenge the very logic of incarceration that reduces people to crime categories? And how does it change the power relations by helping to empower people who've been directly impacted, people with long sentences who society tries to throw away? How are we helping to bring their voices into public discussion? And there's no easy answer to how you know, you distinguish a reform from a genuinely abolitionist practice. It, it, you know, in my, in my thinking, there's no like blueprint for that, mm. but we need to constantly be reflecting about it in our practice. How are we making this more than just a reform, but something that genuinely challenges the mindsets and the power relations of incarceration? She was speaking about how to, how to empower the persons that, that have been incarcerated uh, for long periods of time. This is a training that was brought to my attention. HALA, the acronym is HALA, and it's how our lives link together, link all together. And it really addresses trauma. Um, and, and speaking to that trauma and getting to that trauma is kind of how you empower and how you can take control of your community and um, mm -hmm. prevent a lot of this stuff when you address it. What's really coming out this year is um, trauma that's related to institutions. It, in schools, your carceral uh, rules, I've been learning about the hidden curriculum that exists in schools. Let's see, domestic violence is a part of that. Your, just your traditional traumas are there, but there's, there's this hidden piece that's there as well. I would say I, I've, I've spoken to people who, a, a young lady who had a daughter who was in a, a behavior disorder classroom. Well, she's in the classroom with seven boys, okay? Which changes the dynamic of her experience with the school and how she exists in the school. And the very thing Sherry was talking about was, you know, that power. Who has the power here? Um, and, and those type things that you don't necessarily see shape behavior and shape decisions and, and ultimately impact someone's lives. Like I was, I've talked about this before, the stigma of having a loved one that's incarcerated mm. and, and your child trying to go through a school system that you know may or may not know this information, but only seeing you able to 
perform to at, at a certain level, irregardless of how that child actually performs. I see a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of it, just, you know, limitations on, on based on how someone views you or your family unit. Mm. Um, yeah, I see it. This is one of the ways in which prison further traumatizes lots of people who are touched by it. Absolutely. And, and I've, I'm touched by it. And, and I've, I've tried to explain to people that, you know, my job is to prevent incarceration and death, period. Whatever happens in between the two, I'm trying to stop. So I, I do spend a lot of times identifying pathways to those two things. And um, those pathways are just, wow. I would say 90% are trauma-based. Trauma um, since we're talking about trauma, I wanna flip over to um, something a little bit more hopeful and something that is deeply reflective of our shared humanity and ask you about the art project aspect of Parole Illinois. Would one of you be willing to tell us about the art project and tell us why it's such an important part of Parole Illinois? Um, perhaps I can speak to that because I've been involved in the art contest and the art um, profiles on our website. This was started by people inside who want so bad to be recognized for their intellectual agency, their creative agency. And so in 2018, I believe it was, Joe Dole and Howard Keller um, decided they wanted to have an art contest to showcase the work of people inside. Um, it was a way to get people engaged in thinking about why parole is an important because they were supposed to express that theme in their art, but also a way to help um, people recognize all the amazing creative work that people are doing on the inside, which to me is absolutely amazing because at Stateville, they don't even have a desk or chair in most of the cells. And it's very difficult to get art supplies. So it, it just blows my mind that they create such beautiful work in such difficult conditions. But that was another amazing collaboration between Ohio Wesleyan students and um, our directors who were incarcerated at Stateville Prison. The people incarcerated at Stateville Prison had the idea of the art contest, but um, a whole community of us on the outside, in, including volunteer students at Ohio Wesleyan about once a week, we sat in my office and went through um, all these pieces of art that were sent to us. And then, um, so we had that art contest, over hundred people sent us art and essays. And then um, later Joe Dole and others decided that it would be nice to create profiles of some of the artists and let them have a page where people saw their works and saw a little bio of them because there is no other way. I mean, you know, no um, institutionalized way at least for these individuals who are creating such beautiful art to, to have their art and, and their story expressed outside. Mm -hmm. it, it feels like a, you know, an interesting kind of activism um, just to support these people and try to get their voices and their art out to the broader public. 
I think we also want to shout out our friends at PNAP, Prison Neighborhood Arts Project, who have been teaching art classes in Stateville where the campaign originated and have been cultivating artists inside Stateville Prison. So a big shout out to PNAP. I don't want to necessarily speak to the art question, but um, yes, art is definitely important when and on the inside. Um, and um, Brian shouted out the Prisons and Neighborhoods Art Project. I'm also heavily involved with them and we're looking to actually set up a space where we can use art as a vehicle to, co to connect the uh, uh, individuals on the inside and their families and communities on the outside and raise awareness around the issues of incarceration and uh, what, it, what, is it, what it means for the community and the family members to actually have somebody incarcerated. So yeah, I mean, Art's a, a, a powerful uh, a format and mode in which to uh, communicate and, and we're currently trying to tap into that. What else about Parole Illinois would any of you like to share that we haven't yet covered? I'll just go ahead and say, you know, to have a, a support group um, for family members, it really has made a difference, mm -hmm. I think, in not only the family members' lives, but um, in our loved ones' lives, because we're able to communicate, you know, what we're hearing from each other within the group, and we can learn from each other. And we know what a little bit about what's happening in each prison, as opposed to just being all isolated. We're currently developing a somewhat loosely based curriculum around that so that we can develop a format on how to create a space like this. We don't want to, I, there's geographical nuances to what all this looks like. So we just, we're making it loosely formatted so that they have uh, the ability to exercise their agency and make, and make it into a space that all their own. So that's currently something that Pro Illinois has going on in the works. We are also uh, looking into creating a dialogue with, with victims uh, networks and victims groups. They have been a big proponent of tough on crime narratives. And we're looking to begin a healing process to commence the, 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 the discussion around um, justice and justification. One of the one of the big um, themes that's kind of weaved throughout this uh, uh, tough on crime uh, political narrative is that you know people deserve the time they get, and they some people would, uh, feel that you know you should be incarcerated for the rest of your life if you've taken life yourself. Where that does nothing for the actual healing process of the victims in and of themselves, and we're looking to commence that conversation so that we can begin the healing process and actually deal with uh, the trauma of the whole scenario around incarceration, victims, uh, uh, perpetrators, victimizing the perpetrators, victimizing the victim, and, and, and further in, in uh, uh, moving the, 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 the ball forward in this respect. After you guys win this campaign for SB 2333 and your husband and brother are, are released, what would you like to see happen next? 
What will be your next move with Parole Illinois after the success of the campaigns that you currently have ongoing? I definitely see myself, just personally, my own goals continuing this work. I know that Parole Illinois is currently working towards some things as far as how the PRB should be structured and changed and made to work properly. So I would love to work on that with them moving forward once this bill is passed. The other thing that I'm passionate about is the children that are affected because of their parents who are incarcerated. It was my brother, but he was everything to me at that age and everything that I thought that was righteous and beautiful and smart and protection to me. And I didn't realize until I'm older how that affected me because although my father is a firefighter and my mom worked for the Commerce Commission and we thought we had a, like a lower middle-class type of life, it really interrupted me in a lot of ways. And, um, it, it has had an effect even in my adulthood. So for me, moving forward, all of those children that my brother left at home when he was incarcerated and all of the other children to be able to provide tangible support and means to them, that's me and Manny and I, we have this a little baby, our not-for-profit that we're going to push to help uh, underserved youth come from similar backgrounds as him, my brother, Pablo, growing up, being able to offer them real things, not just, oh, we're going to pray, let's talk about it, something tangible, helping them stay connected to their families on the inside. So my future is still in this work. Even once my husband is home and my brother is home and this bill is passed and thousands of other are home, it is still generations of children that have come up in this that will need support. And so that's where I see myself and God willing, it'll come through soon. But the only other thing I would share with the world or anybody that can come under the sound of my voice is hope. There is always that, it is always a fight. Continue working on and be encouraged because although it seems after 20 years and I'm sure that people that have served that day after day have had to deal with am I gonna to continue to live today? There is always that chance, that moment, that next thing, these children that have come up in it and are now gonna move forward and do great things in the world are gonna correct these issues and these problems and they will come up in this movement, in this moment. And as terrible as the pandemic and mass incarceration and the school to prison pipeline and all of those things are, I think, them having experienced it, they will be more better equipped to understand and dismantle these structures that they've had to suffer through. So that is what I hope. And I would pray that people hold on to and encourage their family and support their loved ones that are incarcerated. I would like to address something that really wasn't addressed. Um, as being somebody who's kind of re-entering society, um, Pro-Illinois provided me an opportunity for employment and I'm grateful for that. Um, that's been a hurdle for re-entry for years. Um, they've corrected it with the abandoned box, but now there are other measures that 
make it difficult, like um, you must pass a background check. So that's basically telling me not to apply there. But Pro Illinois is adamant about having uh, uh, impacted individuals in its campaign. And I'm grateful for that. There are other organizations as well who are uh, um, changing their practices to include uh, 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 in people who have been impacted by mass incarceration. So I'm grateful for them. But uh, uh, what I want to get to is that in this uh, role as lead organizer, I have met many people in, 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 in different respects. And one of the things that we're doing is that we're creating community around this issue. Um, it, it reaches out farther than, than just impacted communities. It reaches out into communities that really aren't impacted and not really aware of the issues. And uh, uh, we're, we're raising this awareness and in raising this awareness, this community space has been something that's been beautiful. It's brought uh, um, the, the temperament of the Trump campaign to an end for me and has kind of brought humanity to the forefront. And that's been a beautiful experience after having suffered such a tremendous one. So um, I, that's just something that I wanted to point out and in doing this work. Thank you, Pablo. Brian, you want to talk about a panel you're holding in April? Yeah, one of the spaces where we're bringing this campaign is among students. And we have a panel at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. <laughs> Um, we've been working with students there at Knox College, and so on April 9th at 5 o'clock, we're hosting a virtual panel that will include some of the people on the call today, um, the team for Parole Illinois, to talk about the issue. And, um, you know, not are we only working with students and, and talking about parole, but there we're going to be um, sending letters in the nearby Hill Correctional Center. So um, we're trying to, you know, broaden the network and, and incre increase communication beyond the cell walls. Our panel is called Changing the Narrative. And if you uh, go on social media, you can find a link for the event at the Parole Illinois page um, on, on Facebook. Um, and if you sign up, we have a contact form on the Parole Illinois website, paroleillinois.org. We'll be sending out notifications for that panel on April 9th. Yeah, I would like to also point out that we have <laughs> several events coming up uh, uh, with different organizations. Uh, we have one coming up with the evangelical community out of the School of Restorative Arts. Um, you can also check our face, our uh, uh, proillinois.org page for that as well. And we will be uh, having a... Uh, in a so Protonoise uh, commence uh, uh, from a um, debate that was held inside Stateville. We're looking to continue that debate with, on the outside with uh, uh, youth that have been impacted by mass incarceration and hope and we will be uh, uh, announcing those events as well. You can check on our website, follow up on any of these events. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for their help on the show. You can find out more about their work at paroleillinois.org, including those past and future events they mentioned and about the SB 2333 bill that they spoke about last week. We'll have a link to that previous episode with them on our new website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402.
please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.